All right, well, good morning, church. All right, you have your Bibles? We're in John chapter 2. We'll be finishing up John chapter 2 this morning. Last week, if you remember, we talked about or we discussed Jesus turning water into wine. It says that is the first of his signs. There are seven main um, miracles that we look at when we go through the Gospel of John that point to the uh, divinity of Christ, that point to the fact that Jesus is God. And water into wine is the first of the seven, but it's not just the first of the seven miracles through the book of John. It's really just the, it's the first of the signs that Jesus performed in his ministry. It was the, the first miracle that he did. It was the first sign that declared that Jesus was God, that Jesus was the Messiah. It says that through that miracle, he through that miracle, he manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. That was what the miracle was about, nothing else. It wasn't about party time and reasons to go try to figure out how to drink wine or anything like that. It was a miracle that pointed to the fact that Jesus is God. That's what it was about. Remember the theme of the gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things, referring to the gospel of John, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the theme of the Gospel of John. So everything that we read and everything that Jesus does here, the miracles, and and even today, cleansing the temple, are all things that point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him that you may have life in his name, right? Now, some people didn't like the fact, don't like the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, Right? And so they'll teach it and they'll change it so it's like grape juice or Kool-Aid or whatever it was that makes them feel better about it. Right? On the flip side of that, some people have absolutely zero issues right, with the fact that Jesus turned water into wine. It doesn't bother them at all. And yet, at the same time, those same people will find an issue with what we're talking about today. They have no problems with the wine, but they have a big issue with Jesus flipping tables and driving money changers and animals out of the temple with a whip, right? They can't accept it. It goes against how they see Jesus, right? If you guys know who Origen is, Origen is an early Christian scholar from the second, third century slash, I mean, I think he passed away around somewhere around 250 AD or something like that. Anyway, Origen was a big member of the early church, and uh, he did not accept the fact that it was written in the Gospel of John that Jesus drove people out of the temple. He wouldn't accept it. And he wouldn't accept it because it went against the picture that he had had of Jesus. That was what was written about him. And so he wrote this, right? He didn't like the fact that he was pretty sure that if Jesus went into the temple and started flipping over tables and whipping people, or animals and stuff and driving them out of the temple grounds that the, that the crowds would have turned on Jesus and attacked him. So he was like, this never would have happened. It couldn't have happened. So this is what Origen says. He says, to think moreover of the son of God, taking the small cords in his hands and plating a scourge out of them for this driving out from the temple. Does it not bespeak audacity and temerity and even some measure of lawlessness? So what Origen did because he didn't like it. He claimed it was all allegory. And that's how he taught it. 
right? He said the temple is the soul skilled in reason. The whip is Jesus's word plated out of doctrines of demonstration and rebuke. The ox were earthly things. The sheep were senseless and brutal things, the poor sheep, and the doves are empty and unstable thoughts. Otherwise, he says, the passage would have an unlikely air. And this is what happens when we don't understand or we don't want to accept what we read in God's word. If we don't like it, we just decide it means something else. And we change it. Right? I, had this, I was talking with someone yesterday about uh, w- their wife had just read through Genesis and she had just read Lot and uh, God bringing judgment down on Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened when the, Lot had the angels. Eddie and I just watched the teaching on this, actually. So it was fresh in my mind. So when he sat down and was talking to me about his wife reading through this, I, I had a lot of answers for him. And, uh, but he was like, my wife just read through this and the angels in the house and the crowd coming up and the Lot's willing to offer his daughters. And she was like, that's really disturbing. So I don't like that at all. She goes, I'm looking for someone to give me a different, uh, you know, a different view on it that makes me feel better. I'm like, there is no different view on that that's going to make you feel better. You're going to have to accept it for what it is. It's, it's there for a reason. Let's not take God's word if we don't, we don't understand it and, and just decide it means something else entirely. But that's what people do. Listen, let me, let me just be clear as we get into this today. Jesus made a whip, all right? And he cleansed the temple. And this is not the only time. He did this twice. Not necessarily the whip, but the cleansing of the temple. It's not hard to understand and it doesn't need reimagining. You don't need to like, well, let me see if I can, you know, this is just allegory. This is just, you know, metaphorical. This is just whatever. No, it's not. It's literal. Jesus did it literally. So accept God's word for what it is, right? The word of God. So let's read John chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I pray, Lord, that you just speak this to our hearts. And I thank you, Lord, for for speaking to us in matters like this and, and just showing us the clear picture of what's going on here so that we don't have to be afraid to approach scriptures that seem confusing or hard for us to wrap our heads around because um, it doesn't fit our picture of how things should be. Well, hey, thank you, Lord, for speaking that into us so that we can understand what it is you're showing us and what it is you're teaching us in your word. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And I have water up here already, Julie. Thank you. 
nice smoky air. <clears throat> so it's Passover in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, when it was Passover, of course, it was crowded with thousands and thousands, if not millions of people. Right? And notice, I just want to bring this out really quick. John says, it's the Passover of the Jews. Why would John bring out the fact that it's the Passover of the Jews when John himself is a Jew? Did he need to remind himself what it was? No. It's just a reminder to you, the reader, that he's speaking to Gentiles as well, not just Jews. So he's explaining to them what it is. It's the Passover of the Jews. Now, Jerusalem, like I said, will be crowded with thousands, if not millions of visitors during Passover. So there's a lot of different feasts in the Bible. There's, you know, uh, and these different feasts happen at different times of the year, which, of course, are different seasons. And the Passover is when? What month? Anybody know off the top of your head usually what month the Passover is in? April. So if it's in April, what season is that? Spring. So if it's in April and it's spring, what type of cleaning is this? Spring cleaning. Very good. I led you right to that one. Very good. It's a spring cleaning. Jesus is doing a spring cleaning of the temple. Spring cleaning, of course, is when we start putting things in their place and we start looking through those boxes that have been sitting in the garage for 20 years that we haven't opened since we moved, right? And we start going through all these things and we're getting rid of the unused or the unneeded things that are cluttering our home, or in this case, the temple, right? And this is just, and this is just the first time that Jesus does this because remember, this is in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does this towards the end of his ministry. Matter of fact, around the last week of his ministry before his crucifixion. And that was the second time he goes into the temple and clear, cleans it. This is the first time he goes into the temple and cleans it. So he does this more than once. It's like after he got done this time, he turned around and goes, I'll be back, right? And then he came back a couple years later and continued, but he doesn't reference things the same way when he does it the second time. But that being said, what Jesus is doing here is, is more than just a cleaning. It's really a deep cleaning, right? This is why we call it a cleansing. It's more of a spring cleansing than a spring cleaning because a cleansing is a deep, it's a thorough, deep cleaning, right? If we refer to it physically about like if we're going to cleanse our body or whatever, the idea of course is that we're getting rid of these toxic substances and these unhealthy substances that we have, you know, building up in our body when we give ourselves a, a cleansing. It's no different here. The temple was toxic and unhealthy, and it needed a deep cleansing. Now, the question you might be asking, of course, is, well, how? How is the temple toxic? It, I mean, it's the temple of God. I mean, how is it unhealthy? What, what was the problem going on within the temple exactly that made it this way? Well, Jesus answers the question. He answers it with the very first thing he says here concerning this when he comes in. And his own comment tells you what the problem was. He says, take these things away, right? What things? Well, the fact that he saw those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers, right? So he says, take these things away and do not make my father's house, pay attention to what he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade, right? <clears throat> so Jesus lays out the problem. He says, the temple has become a house of trade. It's no longer a temple of God, Right? And when he, does, when he comes back the second time and he cleanses out the temple, he calls it a den of thieves. And thieves, of course, implies theft. 
right? So you get the picture, right? It's a house of trade. It's a den of thieves. There's a problem with the temple of God. So what's a house of trade? Well, in the Greek, the word used there is emporion. All right? You probably understand what what we get from that word. Emporium, right? As come one, come all to the great temple emporium, right? That's what he's saying it is, right? We got the best deals on the sheep. We got the best deals on the pigeons. We'll give you the best trade for your cash, right? We'll do the best exchange on your money. The money changers did business by exchanging whatever currency you had, wherever you came from. Because remember, when it was a Passover, people came from all over to be in Jerusalem, but they had to pay a temple tax. And, and they couldn't pay the temple tax in whatever currency you had, right? Wherever country you were from, whatever money they used, you couldn't use that money to pay the temple tax. You had to use temple coins to pay the temple tax. So the temple controlled the currency rate that's right. So you came in with whatever you had, and, and then you exchanged it for the temple coins, and then you could pay the temple tax with the temple coins. So they controlled that. That's why the money changers were there. Now, also, you had these people selling sheep and oxen and pigeons, and these were all sold for sacrifices and, and things like that. What? You need, a, you need a spotless sheep? I got one right here for you. What? You need a perfect pigeon? I got one right here for you, right? And they're selling all these things in the temple. So when Jesus heads into the temple and he sees all this going on, all these merchants selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and he sees the money changers and he sees them in the temple. This is not outside the temple. This is not, you know, the local farmer's market. This is in the temple. And when we say in the temple, remember the temple is a large place, right? When we say in the temple, because this is done in the outer courts of the temple, obviously, when we say in the temple, what we mean is the court of the Gentiles. That's where they set up. Okay, So when Jesus enters and sees that the temple, that the house of God was no longer a house of worship, why would it no longer be a house of worship? Because the court of Gentiles was the only area that Gentiles could come to worship God. And that area was now cluttered up with the temple market, right? Which was basically fleecing and or stealing from the Gentiles, not just physically, but spiritually as well, because it was hindering their worship, right? The religious leaders were actually stopping worship when they put all these tables and all these booths up to sell stuff that would take up the room that the Gentiles needed to come in and worship. And so therefore it was hindering the Gentiles worship of God. And Jesus understands when he comes in and he sees everything that's going on, he understands that the physical, physical condition of the temple was a vivid indication of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. And so he decides to clean house. I mean, Jesus had just turned water into wine, and now he's going to come in and start flipping tables, which gives a whole new meaning to the phrase being Christ-like. Okay? The joke is that anyone asks you what would Jesus do, you can remind them that flipping tables and chasing off people with a whip is not beyond the realm of possibilities. Right? But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't throwing a fit. He wasn't having a temper tantrum. Okay? He's not like a toddler who didn't get his way and has planted himself on the floor and is not budging. He's just going to scream his head off, right? He's not doing this in a flash of anger. And how do we know that he's not doing this? That he's actually in control of his emotions. 
because he makes a whip of cords. That's what it says. It says, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Here's a question for you. Maybe someone knows the answer. How long does it take to make a whip of cords? Nobody knows this? Have none of you done this? Come on. Right? I don't know how long it takes either. But I'm assuming it takes longer than 30 seconds. Or probably maybe even longer than five minutes. I'm not, I'm not really sure. He had to get the materials. Right? He had to gather up whatever it was he needed. And then he had to sit there and braid them all together to make this whip of cords. And I have to assume that Jesus came in, saw what was going on, turned around, found the materials he needed, sat down, watching everything that's going on, took a deep breath, gathered his thoughts, prayerfully considered what his next actions were going to be, and sat there staring at everybody while just making this whip of cords. And there probably, maybe even some people looked at him and said, what's that guy doing over there? I don't know, he's like he's putting a whip together or something, right? But what that tells you is that he was in control of his feelings. He was calm about things. He hadn't just lost his temper. right? He hadn't just blown his top. His mind was clear. Right? He's not just going to go crazy and start flipping over tables. But he actually took the time to make the whip first. He was in control of his emotions, which you and I... Usually when we lose our temper or we get upset about things, we are generally not in control in the way that Jesus is. And this, just so you know, is not an excuse for our temper tantrums. We can't call back on this and say, well, Jesus went in and flipped tables and drove people out of the temple with a whip. Right? My actions are justified. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not. There's no excuse for us to act this way because it says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It tells us that in James 1.20. We might have righteous anger about something that we see and it might be justifiable in the sense that we're, that we're angry about the, what we saw. But generally when we act on righteous anger, we're no longer righteous because we're acting out of our flesh. Right? But not for Jesus. This was holy zeal. That's what the disciples, that's what John tells us right here in the verse, right? The disciples remembered the verse. It says, his, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This was holy zeal. They remembered Psalm 69.9 that says, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. They remembered the verse when they saw it when they saw what Jesus did. This was holy zeal. And zeal means indignation or righteous jealousy or a holy passion. That's what it is. This is Jesus acting in holy zeal. And his zeal was due to the fact that Jesus knew exactly why the temple was there. And he knew whose temple it was. Right? It was a place for all nations, as Jesus will say later when he comes to clean the temple again. He said it's a place for all nations to worship God. He knew why the, the purpose of, of the temple. Yet instead of that, the religious leaders discovered that they could make money off people. Right? They could take advantage of the people. 
that doesn't happen today in any churches, does it? Well, no. How about you buy this prayer cloth? Right? How about you buy this holy water? You need this for your prayer time. You need this to get closer to God. No, that doesn't happen today. So Jesus overturns it all in more ways than one. So no, Jesus wasn't throwing a fit, but he was, understand this, he was in a sense declaring war on religion, on the Jewish religion. Because notice what he says. Right? This is why I say that. We see, number one, that it's personal. Jesus, when he comes in, he does this. He says, what? He says that this is his father's house. When he comes back a second time to cleanse the temple, he says, this is my house. The first time he comes in, he says, this is my father's house. Right? So it's personal. Now, mind you, both comments won him no awards with the religious elite of Jerusalem. Because what he is declaring here is very simply that he is the son of God. And later he just declaring straight out that he is God. Right? This is my father's house. This is my house. Both are true, mind you. Yet, as it tells us in John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So the religious leaders, hearing Jesus' comments, were just like, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Because he was announcing that he and God were one. And that was equal to declaring war, as far as the religious leaders were concerned. So they ask him a question, and it's a very... It's, you know, hey, they should have asked him, absolutely. It's appropriate for them to ask them this question. They said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what authority do you have to come into this temple and start flipping over tables and driving out the vendors? Who are you? What authority do you have to do this? And Jesus answers their question. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. Now, Later, you know, on in Jesus' ministry, he's going to say, you want a sign? Well, no other sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah, right? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or in Luke, he says, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Is he referring to himself? Right? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who's he referring to? Himself. Right? Jesus is speaking in resurrection language, as it's been said. Right? He was speaking about his death and his resurrection. You want a sign, he's saying? Well, look at the empty grave. I mean, we weren't there yet, but that's what he's saying. You want a sign? Look at the empty grave. But the only problem, of course, was for the religious leaders was that they were blind to the spiritual truth of what Jesus said. They only saw things in material or physical terms. And so when Jesus says, you tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it, three days, they're like, how can you, what? 
It took us 47 years to build this temple. There's no way you can rebuild this temple in three days. It's completely lost. It goes right over their head. They have no idea what Jesus is talking to because they do not accept him for who he is. But as John tells us right here that Jesus wasn't speaking about physical or material things. He is speaking about spiritual things because Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Right? In Christ, the temple is no longer needed. Is there a temple today in Jerusalem? No. Will there be a temple again in Jerusalem? Yes. Will the Spirit of God dwell in the temple in Jerusalem? No. Not when it's built again. It's coming, right, in the millennial reign. It's coming with the new temple, with the new heavens and the new earth. But the temple was still important. Jesus was not against the temple in Jerusalem. He just knew it was no longer needed. The temple was an important element of the Jewish faith because they believed God dwelled there. Their entire religion was centered around the temple. All the ceremonies and all the sacrifices happened there. But remember what Jesus told the woman at the well. Fast forward to John chapter 4. We'll be there eventually soon. Hashtag, you know, spoiler alert. Right? But Jesus said to her, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus declares that there's going to come a time when the temple is not going to be important. And matter of fact, he says that time is here now because it's with me. And why is that? Because in Christ, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Spirit of God doesn't dwell in a temple made by man. If you were in Christ, the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. Did you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3.16? Right? God the Father created our bodies. God the Son redeemed us. And God the Spirit now dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That makes our body the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple conveys the idea that our bodies are a shrine, therefore, right? A sacred place in which the Spirit not only lives, but is worshipped, revered, and honored. Right here. Now, those who aren't in Christ, obviously, do not have the Holy Spirit, and therefore their bodies are not a temple. Notice that Jesus wasn't turning over tables, like I said, out at a local farmer's market. He was turning over tables in the temple of God. Had they been selling all this stuff outside the temple, he probably wouldn't have done a thing about it. But it was where they were doing it that was wrong. It wasn't necessarily what they were doing, even though that was wrong. They didn't need to take advantage of the Gentiles or, or anything like that. Right? So as the Holy Spirit resides in us, we're to honor God with our bodies and we're to honor God with our lives. Paul will also write in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He repeats it again. He says, with, 
whom you have from God. You're, you're not your own, he says. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We've been bought with a price. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. Right? You know, we often, too often, quite frankly, put our faith in the gold and silver. But it says right here, tells us right here in God's word that it's not the silver or gold that redeemed you. Right? It's not the silver or gold that ransomed you from your sin. The silver or gold didn't save you. It's the blood of Christ that did. You were not redeemed by anything perishable. You were redeemed by the unperishable, by the immortal, by Jesus. That's what he's telling them. See, Jesus going in and clearing out the temple was a physical thing he actually did, but it has greater significance than him just cleaning. Right? It has greater significance than they understood. Because he's saying that, listen, the temple is not what you think it is. There's another way that you need to worship the Lord now. That's in spirit and truth. And you are now the temple. The Holy Spirit can now reside in you. You guys think that God is in the temple. You think that his spirit resides in the temple. His spirit doesn't reside there. It left there. It hasn't come back yet. But it can reside in you through Christ. He says that time is now. Quit putting your faith in the gold and the silver. Quit putting your faith in these sacrifices right here that are cluttering up the court of the Gentiles. Quit putting your faith in these things. Quit taking advantage of people. Let them come and worship God. And quit getting in the way. Quit getting in the way. And then the chapter ends with this interesting comment, but it really sums up what Jesus is trying to say here. It says that he's not dependent on man which is kind of an odd statement, but it has to do with how people accept Jesus and how they accept his words and how they accept the truth of what he says, which the religious leaders weren't getting, right? But it says that he's not dependent on man's approval, right? Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Right? It says that in, during this time at the Passover, after he comes in and he clears out the temple, he did other signs and, and wonders, and many people believed because they saw him performing these miracles. But it was the disciples, it says the disciples believed when after he was resurrected, they remembered his words. Right? It says... Verse 22, previously, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, which was destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. They remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It wasn't just signs and wonders that drew them to Jesus or caused them to believe in Jesus. It was the fact that his words were true. Right? So Jesus isn't dependent on what people think. He wasn't dependent on what the religious leaders think. He wasn't going to go into the temple and clear it out, and they're going to be like, but what authority do you have to do this? And he's going to be like, oh, uh, I don't know, tell me. Uh, let's have a discussion about this. Should I have not done this? Uh, did, did I need your approval first? Uh, I'm a little worried about what you guys think. I mean, you are the religious leaders, and, you know, I should have. I'm sorry, did I, get, I didn't get a permit. 
to come in and do this. I really apologize. Now, he, he didn't care at all about what they thought or what they were going to think or anything concerning about his actions because he was not dependent on man's approval. Listen, that doesn't mean he doesn't love man. That, that means he loves man. He's just not dependent on man. His love for you is greater than that, right? You understand? Like if he was dependent on man's approval, would he have gone to the cross? No. He wasn't dependent on man's approval. He loves man, but he's not dependent on them. He knew, it says, he knew what was in their heart. He knew the hearts of man. He had a divine knowledge concerning what was in man. He knew their faith could be fickle. Even of his disciples, right? And he's going to commit himself to a faith that's, he's not going to commit himself to a faith, for example, that's only dependent on miracles. Right? I mean, Jesus, I'll believe if, if you do this. I mean, I saw you cleanse the temple and you've done some of these other things and you were speaking with this authority that's amazing, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure yet, but you know what? I have this problem over here and uh, if you fix this problem for me miraculously, I'll believe in you. You help me pay these bills, I'll believe in you. You put food on my table, I'll believe in you. Jesus is like, that's a fickle faith. I want someone who's going to believe me even if I don't do those things. Right? A lot of people admire Jesus because of the miracles they saw, but Jesus is saying this is a thin and it's a superficial belief. The human heart, sure, it's attracted to sensational things. There was probably a lot of people who saw him go in there and flip over tables and drive people out with the whip. We're like, woo, let's follow this guy. Right? He's great. Is he going to do more things like this? This was awesome. When's the next, you know, when, when are we going to have the next match? This is great. We're attracted to things like that. But Jesus is saying, hey, listen, don't build your life. Don't build your relationship with God on signs and wonders. Build it on me. Build it on Jesus. Build it on Jesus himself, right? Don't seek signs. Seek Jesus. Israel and her faith had fallen far from God. And that's what Jesus knew when he walked into the temple. That's what he could see by the condition of the temple, right? Their worship was a chore. Their scriptures were dull and the temple had really just become an icon. It represented something, but that something wasn't actually there, right? Matthew 15 verses eight and nine said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. They weren't even teaching God's word. And Jesus goes into the temple and he sees the problem immediately. He already knew the problem before he entered the temple. And because of his zeal for his father's house, he cleansed it. It wouldn't stay clean. They would immediately come back and continue doing the same thing. It would incrementally just get worse, which is why he came back and he cleansed it again. He was telling them, he was giving them a sign. But they didn't want to accept his word. They weren't going to accept his signs. They didn't care. Right? But for us personally, here's the thing. When your zeal for God has left, when you have no more desire to learn and grow closer to the Lord, 
then you worship is just religiosity. It's just religion. Which is what it had become in Jerusalem. It's sterile. It's legal. Because they had no joy for the Lord. It was just a business. They were making a profit off of it. They were taking advantage of people. People that they should have been pointing to God and allowing them to worship God. Instead, they were fleecing them. Right? Controlling the money exchange, controlling the sale of animals for sacrifices, controlling all of this. Right? If you're going to hang out here, you've got to wear our shirt, you've got to wear our little armband, you've got to put on everything that we sell. You can't bring any of your own stuff. You're not allowed to bring your own drinks into the temple. You've got to buy the temple drinks when you get in there. Right? Can't bring your own popcorn in. Got to buy the temple popcorn. I mean, it's ridiculous, but this is basically what they were doing. They'd lost zeal for serving the Lord. They, they thought they were serving the Lord. With their mouth, they were praising the Lord. But Jesus said, no, their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are nowhere near me. This is my father's house. This is the house of God. This is a house of worship. It's a house of worship for all nations. And instead of letting people worship, you're just making a profit by taking advantage of them. When your zeal for God is left and you have no more desire to learn and grow closer to the Lord, then your worship is just religion. But here's the thing. In Christ, you've been given a new life. So live that life. Worship the Lord joyfully, with passion, with your entire life, right? Take your grave clothes off because you are no longer in the grave. Jesus cleared the temple because he wanted people to come near and worship God. Jesus wants your worship. This is the question for you. Jesus wants your worship. So in this scenario, there's like three ways it plays out. One, there are some tables in your life that need to be flipped. It's possible that you're sitting at some of these tables. You're sitting at tables that Christ, if he came in, would flip as soon as he walked in the door. You need to clear those tables out. Another scenario is you possibly are a table. <laughs> That's another scenario. You're a table in the temple of God. You yourself are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you're a table. And in some ways, you're stopping people from worshiping God. You're actually hindering people from drawing close to God. God's going to flip that table too. Listen, Jesus has no problem coming in to our lives and give us a cleansing. He has no issue with it. We need it. It's discipline for us who are in Christ. Right? He'll come in and discipline us. He's going to come in and turn over the tables if he has to. Why? Because he wants the clutter removed. Right? 
spiritually speaking, so that you can worship him in spirit and truth. He wants to get those things out of the way. You don't need to be setting up tables. You don't need to be sitting at those tables. You don't need those tables in your sanctuary. He says, don't, don't get in the way. Don't let these things get in the way. Don't get, you don't get in the way of other people worshiping God. Don't let these things get in your way of worshiping God. I'm going to come in there. I'm going to sit down in your sanctuary. I'm going to braid this cord of whips, and then I'm going to go to work. I'm going to clean it. I'm going to clean it. If you need a cleansing, you will get it. Oswald Chambers has this quote. It says, No enthusiasm will ever stand the strain that Jesus Christ will put upon his worker. Only one thing will, and that is a personal relationship to himself, Jesus, which has gone through the mill of his spring cleaning. Until there is only one purpose left, which is, I am here for God to send me where he will. I'm not saying that your lives are cluttered up with tables, but I think it's something for us to always pay attention to and look at because we ourselves are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, as we see, is not against spring cleanings. And we know how things get cluttered up. We know how easy it is for our lives to be cluttered up with things. We know how it is. I mean, just look at our houses, right? Our houses aren't necessarily an indication of our spiritual life, but trust me, our houses have lots of stuff stacked around. Right? That's why we do spring cleanings, so we can get this stuff out of here. Oh, hey, we didn't need that. It's been sitting there for 10 years. Let's move it out. Right? But it gets that way in our spiritual lives as well. And God's like, I don't have any problem coming in and cleaning it. Just let me know. Matter of fact, I might just do it without asking. Because you're going to need it. So, you know, it's one thing in our lives that we respond to Christ because he does a miracle, because he answers a prayer, because, you know, he has done something in our life that's drawn him, that's drawn us closer to him. That's another thing entirely to actually commit yourself to Christ. And live a life according to his word. See, it, we know this, right? It takes more than just believing in miracles for a person to be saved. There was a lot of people who believed in the miracles that they saw that never actually drew close to Jesus. It's a great beginning, right? It, it caught a lot of people's attention, but you have to grow from that. It says that his disciples believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. But you have to grow from that. Stay in his word. Continue to grow closer to Jesus, even during the lean times, even during the times where it seems like he's not doing anything. Because he's still at work in those times as well. Because right? Jesus' miracles and the acts that he does and, and the stuff in our lives, these are all tied into the truth of his message. And the truth of his message is simply this. It's that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, Right? And through him and him alone is salvation. That's his message. You want eternal life in Christ Jesus? It comes this way. Right? Through Jesus alone. Right? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by, by which we must be saved, as it tells us in Acts. That's his, that's his message. And everything that he does in our lives is tied into the truth of that message. So in our relationships, don't we, don't, let's not just long for the physical things. Right? For the physical food, you could say. 
Let's long for the spiritual truth. Right? Let's don't turn our temples into emporiums. Right? Don't turn our temples into den of thieves. Instead, let's just worship the Lord with all our life and draw closer to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, and I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that we can live this out, that we can continue, Lord, just to reflect upon our lives and what you're doing in our lives and just continue to surrender it to you, Lord, so that you continue just to cleanse it. You can continue to clean us from the inside out, Lord. Shape us and mold us. So sanctification, Lord, as you change us into being holy, as you are holy. So I thank you for this. I thank you for the work that you do in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we just continue to seek you out and draw closer to you every living day with every breath that we take. I pray, Lord, also for everything that's just going on in the world right now, because so much is happening. And it seems like, you know, as I heard it said recently, half of the world is on fire and the other half is preparing for World War III. It's just crazy. So I pray, Lord, that you just continue to be with the hearts of men, that you just continue to let your spirit speak to people. Clear the, the tables out of lives, Lord, of people who need to draw closer to you now before it's too late. Lord, I pray that we just continue to keep our eyes skyward, we, that we live lives ready to go, bags packed, looking for the return of Jesus, looking for that day that we are called up to meet him. We just thank you for that, Lord pray, Lord, that we can continue to be a light. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.